Content warning. The Silence Voices Stories of MST podcast discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics related to military sexual trauma. We want to provide a safe space for survivors and those seeking to understand these issues better. Please be advised that the content may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please consider seeking guidance from a mental health professional or a trusted resource. Welcome to Silence Voices, Stories of MST, hosted by Rachel Smith. This podcast is dedicated to giving a voice to military sexual trauma survivors. Each week, we'll bring you powerful stories of courage, resilience, and healing. Join us on this journey to create awareness, spark dialogue, and drive change within the military community. It's time to break the silence and amplify the voices of those who have been silenced for far too long. Listen in and become a part of a movement that's shaping the future. Voices, Stories of MST. Hello, welcome to another episode of Silence Voices, Stories of MST. As always, I'm your host, Rachelle Smith, and thanks so much for joining us. Today's episode is one that I think will make a quite the impact on your life if you are trying to file your MST claim right now. Our guest, Shay, is... She's one of a kind. I had a lot of fun speaking with her, which you can tell, but um, she has some really great information about the claims process that will help you if you are struggling. It's a nice shortcut. It's something that came out pretty recently, and I had no idea that this was a thing until a different interview I had done with our guest, Jay. She had mentioned it, and then Shay compounded upon it a few days later, which was pretty amazing. So Grab your pens and pencils for this episode. It's not some information that you want to miss. And I'll also put it in the show notes so that you have it right in front of you. Good luck with your MST claim. I know that process sucks. I've been through it myself. But even after learning this information, I decided, you know what? I can go through it one more time. Also, if you want to tell Shay a a big thanks, which I'm sure you will by the end of this, please stick around till the end of the episode and I will share with you how. Well, hello, my name is Shay Spencer Watson and I was in the United States Army, um, transitioned out of that. Now I support military families each and every day. Um, So that's that is who I am. Thank you for doing that. Our military families are we're unique. (laughs) We go through a lot. That's, oh my gosh, I can't tell you. Growing up as a military brat, looking back on it now, I appreciate it, but there were a lot of moments that I didn't while I was living it. Same. I am a military brat as well. Um, my dad was Air Force, and a lot of the things that I hated, I now appreciate. Like, I'm sure you can appreciate being able to be a chameleon, but you also hate that question, like, where are you from? So I'm somewhere in between there with all that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, I I finally, when I commissioned, I I came up with the answer. It was just like, oh, I'm I'm an Air Force brat. And and people were just like, oh, okay, I get it. So since your family was an Air Force family, what actually led to you joining the Army instead? 
So that's actually a really good question. Um, when I graduated from high school, went to Winston-Salem State University, go Rams. And I was there for about two years realizing like, I actually had to go to class to pass, right? Like crazy concept. And so when I knew my grades were coming out, I was super scared. I didn't want my parents to see like that I had not done well. So I was stumbling through the mall in Winston-Salem and went into an army recruiter who just convinced me that this was going to be the best thing ever. And so I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want them to talk me out of it. But it's funny looking back, uh, my dad at the time is a four-star general and he was the vice chief of the Air Force. And so when it was time for me to go into the military, the recruiter just knocked on the door and was like, you ready? And they were like, what do you mean you're leaving? So we didn't really get to have all those conversations. And so I actually graduated from basic training at Fort Jackson. So it was, it was good times. That must have been quite the look on his face. <laughs> Listen, well, nothing they could do. You couldn't talk me out of it. I had already committed. So it was what it was. That's true. Yeah, I don't envy you <laughs> after that doorbell <laughs> rang. <laughs> oh my goodness. So what was that experience like going through basic and then getting to your, um, was it AIT is, is yeah. what the Army does? Yeah, so basic training was really fun for me, um, mainly because I like thrive in a environment where there's structure. And so there was just all these unpredictable factors and it it just was fun. I, I, you know, you make the best of friends there, one of which I'm still besties with Miss Terry. Just awesome experience. I will say going through basic as a general officer's child is difficult because you try to hide a lot of things about yourself. So you're not scrutinized essentially. So I had my dependent ID card had a cat card. And I remember we were going through some drill. I don't know what we were doing. And both my IDs had to come out and go into my Kevlar to my helmet. And that's when they discovered that I was who I was. And they made basic training hell for me from that point forward. But I did appreciate all the good and bad that came with it. <laughs> I, I feel that pain. Uh, my mom is or was a lieutenant colonel, but I don't think my, my hazing was anywhere near what yours was. But um... <laughs> I also, I had a friend in high school, her dad was uh, one of the generals at the base and she ended up joining the Air Force as well. I think she's actually doing pretty well though. So <laughs> it must be different though, going from being like a flag officer's child to enlisting. So they probably gave you just extra hell. <laughs> yeah, they did because they like called me like a princess and like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And then especially being an Air Force child coming from like, you know, living on Bowling Air Force Base for most of my life or, you know, Langley Air Force Base, you know, and then being thrusted into the Army, it was just a little different. A little different. <laughs> yeah, that's that's two strikes of the, like, not envying you. <laughs> <laughs> Since you did grow up in this environment, did you have any sort of expectation of, of what your experience, of what your career might be like when you did get out of basic and finish training? Not a clue. Not a clue. I just went in blind. Honestly, I was your typical story of just having failed college miserably and was just looking to to try to find the next step forward. I had no expectations of anything. And to me, there's like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, okay, you tried one avenue. So if it didn't work out, hey, at least you didn't quit. That's, that's the key. Like you didn't just yeah, give up. For sure. 
when you reached your your base and kind of got settled in um how did that go or your post my bad <laughs> it's okay i'm i speak your language so it's cool mm-hmm. it was really great you know after basic training i went through ait and i was at fort sam because i was in the medical mm-hmm. side of the house and so after that i ended up going to fort polk which is a very unique place in itself it's in leesville louisiana and when i was there we had a walmart and yeah. something similar to like a Texas roadhouse. And I mean, that was it. And yeah. it, it was a struggle. You really had to depend on friendships to be able to get through. But um, overall though, when you you made like your your friends and well, I guess those friends became family while you were there. What was it like having, okay, you've grown up Air Force and pretty much that's all you knew. Now you're in the army, you've built a family there. And yeah. then some point in your career, MST just reared its ugly head. Yeah, that happened at Fort Polk, ironically. So mm. while I was stationed at Fort Polk again, nothing there, right? I was super excited when I discovered like this margarita like slushy place because I was like, oh, at least I can go somewhere and get a drink. But, you know, it was really just going over to friends' houses, a lot of spades night organized sports, as many people know in the military, like you can go play softball, whatever you want to do um, after work. And so one night I was coming home from being at a friend's house when I was literally like attacked from behind. I was pushed down onto the pavement and I was beaten and literally outside raped before I was drugged inside. And then he did a round two. And for me, in that moment, I'm grateful for a few things, which I'll I'll get into, but I just remember him saying to me vividly, like, do not say anything to anyone or I'm going to kill you. And I was quiet. I was quiet through the entire attack, some of which I was passed out during. And I ended up going, once he left, for some reason, I just went straight to the hospital. I called my squad leader. I said, I got to go to the hospital. And I went to that hospital and I sat. They probably thought I was crazy. Anyway, I'm sitting at the hospital and then I'm trying to express to them what had happened and they were super receptive. But the problem was at that time in the army, I was attacked in 2009. Sharp wasn't in place yet. So people were just flying by the seat of their pants at that point. So, you know, they did the best they could to protect me. But again, there wasn't the, the, you know, procedures that are in place now. So they actually sent me home and told me to come back the next day. So I came back the next day, yeah, came back the next day. They sent me to behavioral health, which was their first stop, which when you're new to the military, you don't know what the, any of this means. You're just moving, right? But they sent me there and there was a very, very kind woman that was in family services that said, I'm going to look out for you. Come with me. They moved me to an undisclosed barracks location on Fort Polk. And I went back to work like normal. They made their report, went back to work like normal. What ended up happening throughout the days that happened since that attack, he started stalking me. So he knew my exact location. He had logged into my email. I mean, the cyber stalking before cyber stalking was a thing, the whole night, which then caused the MPs to get involved again, CID, which is like the FBI of the army to get involved again. And they ended up, you know, having to have an armed guard with a machine gun, escort me around. And so they brought me back to the hospital where this lady 
<laughs> was expressing to me some of my options. And of course, I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. Like, let's just go back to life or whatever. And so what they said to me was to kind of make things feel a little bit better is we're going to go ahead and have him banned from post. It worked. He was gone. I know, I know. Looking back, I cringe, but they had him yeah. Post for our listeners, I'm over here making a ton of faces. <laughs> uh, they had them banned, so everything was back to normal, and then the cyber stalking started again. But this time, he made it clear he was not only going to kill me, but he was going to kill my entire my entire unit because we would go outside in the morning and do PT. So he knew where I was at all times. And that's when they really kicked things up a notch and said, you know, we got to get you out of here. And they put me on orders with the threat to life PCS, meaning you have 48 hours, sell all of your shit, you got to go. And they don't even tell you where you're going. So I just got on a plane with a letter and I was supposed to give it to my new commander. When I got to the airport, obviously checking screens, putting your flights together, I realized they're sending me to Seoul, Korea. And then I'm like, oh my God. Where am I going? Check my orders. And they were sending me to Camp Casey. I get in country in process, which in process, which takes about a month. And when I get to my unit, I give my commander the note that was given to me. I was following orders and I'm not going to speak for them. But what I will say is I think that that was just what they did back then, because the commander said, I'm not dealing with this shit anymore. I'm not dealing with another one. I'm not. You got to go. Another one. He immediately, without even thinking, said, you're going to behavioral health. I did not know what any of these behavioral health appointments meant at the time, but what they were doing was they were initiating a chapter and they were trying mm -hmm. to it based on mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I go to my appointment and I'm sitting with this lady and all of a sudden it clicks what they're trying to paint. And I'm like, wait a second. No, 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 no. I, it, not even 30 days ago, I was just raped. No, no, no. This is not what you guys, the way you guys should be painting this. She then says, brass tacks, you have a decision to make. You're either going to sign this document that states that you were not a victim of sexual assault or, and it's up to you, I'm going to send you home to your four-star daddy with a dishonorable discharge. What do you want to do? At that point... Mind you, 2009, I'm now 37, do the math, not that, you know, mature, I haven't, you know, I'm not the woman I am today. I said, oh my God, I can't go back home and disappoint my parents. You know, they, I already failed out of college. You know what I mean? Like he's a general, I don't want people to say, well, your daughter was a failure. So I signed the paper. I didn't know what else. Yeah. A couple of weeks later, I was discharged and I, fortunately, they did keep their word. I was given an honorable discharge, but I literally, out of shame, just did not talk about it for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. When you were presented with that choice, did the woman have like a, a sympathetic look on her no. face at all? Or it was just... It was, it was the cost of doing business. You know, right. now that I... And where I am today, mind you, when I got out of the, the military, I ended up um, working at the International Association of Chiefs of Police. We love our acronyms, honey, IACP. Yeah. Um, and I got on a team uh, that focused on crimes against women. So, you know, I ended up getting certified and focused in on domestic violence, strangulation, all these things, went across the country and trained law enforcement. And it wasn't until that moment in my life where I was able to take a step back and say, oh, my God, 
they completely took advantage of the fact yes. that I was completely in a state of shock. I was traumatized. They just moved me so quickly that I had no idea that I was being traumatized and violated for a second time. It just never really even, she was not empathetic to answer your question at all. It was just another day for her. Moving itself is a trauma. I don't think a lot of people recognize that. And then especially the way you moved. I didn't, my parents didn't know where I was going. I literally called them from another country. It's one of those things, again, looking back, any of those instances could break a person, right? You are getting yeah. attacked, you're getting cyber stalked, you know, you're not safe, your life is threatened. And going back, I completely forgot he was banned from post. And what really escalated all of this was when he was banned, he then tried to re-enter post through the gate. And when he came through the gate, he had a weapon. That is what really solidified that they had to get me out of there. I'm so sorry, I forgot that. But you're having all of these things happen and you just don't realize that you have the capacity to hold 20 pounds of trauma, let's say, yeah. and I've given 200 and you just begin yeah. to function. All of these little tiny explosions pretty much going on in your brain and body. Oh my God. And so with this particular individual, obviously he's unhinged, some kind of yeah. psychopath. Yes. And their solution was, okay, he can't come on post. Correct. Problem solved. Correct. Correct. But then somehow you you are the problem in, in that whole situation where I, you were the I, one. I don't know. And I need to do a better job because I always make excuses and I need to stop, right? That's a a coping mechanism in itself. But I have been able to sleep at night because I felt that maybe they were doing that because I was the element they could control. I was the active duty member. They could ploop and plop me however they felt. But, you know, they just did not take the time to recognize what all of that was doing to me. One thing that I've noticed has been a common thread in pretty much all of these interviews was we're not going to deal with the assailant. It is the person that got assaulted. It's the person that got harassed. It was the person that even if they didn't come forward and report, they're acting strange now. We're going to get rid of them. We're not going to look into it any further. And they just kind of dust their hands off and it's mission accomplished at that point. And, and now after you've, you've been out and learned all about domestic violence and, and the extents of trauma. What do you think that did to you when you did finally have that realization? Was it, did it ever kind of send you spiraling or were you able to take it in stride? I spiraled in ways that you don't even recognize when you're in that spiral, right? You're just falling and just your life is just going to shit and nothing makes sense. One of the things I think that started the spiral was because I, I, I have this phrase, like I, I scream on the inside like a champion, which is a terrible phrase to have. I don't know where I picked that up from. But when I got out, got sent home, and I'm having to pretty much start my life all over again, one of the things that I thought would be wise was to file for my benefits through the VA. I had this thing happen. It's been documented. Let's go. Like, at least I have that to look forward to to help supplement my life until I can figure it out. Well, if you've ever gone through that process, it's not just that simple. I was denied not once but twice, which then sent me into a spiral because then I felt like they were blaming me again. I did my reporting. I went, I went to the hospital. I did everything. 
But again, Sharp not being established, they did not keep records in this specific the woman that was working for me, and I got to get the name of, of her department that no longer exists, but they didn't keep the records like they do now. So she actually shredded everything when I left. Oh. They, she was protecting me. So that was the first part. And it just was as I'm watching other people that came in with me advance in their career, I felt like, was I dressed to... You know, I just started replaying, like, was this my fault? And that stuck with me for about seven or eight years, honestly. I, I think also when there's not a prosecution or a punishment or even an investigation, all, all your brain can do is turn it in on yourself and, and try to make sense of it that way. And that that's where the anxiety comes from and the PTSD and the depression is because your brain never gets maybe like a sense of justice or closure you're just left on your own to make sense of crazy basically and, and you can't make sense of crazy <laughs> that's just not how it works so i totally been there and going to infer that you you started experiencing symptoms of ptsd with with this spiral what was it like for you so PTSD is nasty because especially when you're a veteran and you're trying to go through the VA process and all these things, it doesn't read like war, right? Like I think when people think of PTSD, they're thinking of like war symptoms, right? It started with me with alienation. Um, I just didn't want to be around people anymore. Then I just did not have an interest in sex at all. So that completely died, which I still deal with. I have a saint of a husband. You know, it's one of those things where I became very controlling because if I could control my environment and the things within that, then I felt that I was always prepared for if something happened to have the upper hand, right? So it starts off small. And then one day you just realize like, oh, I haven't showered for two weeks because I'm sitting around, you know, or it's a nice sunny day, but I don't feel like going outside. Well, when I was attacked, my neighbor had just cut their grass. So the smell of grass started, you know, I remember having gotten into the shower and scrubbed my skin. So, so, you know, harshly that it left wounds on my skin. So now the smell of that soap, which is dove, it just sends me to a bad place. So it's all of these things that begin to stack that lead you in a place to recognize it. Like, oh shit, I need some help. Like, this is not, what I'm going through is not normal. Like we have bypassed what I would consider to be like sad, like, you know, seasonal depression, like this is something's wrong. That's where I was with it. My goodness. And I, I know that you, you kept it in for a long time, but did your family or friends start to pick up on, okay, she hasn't left the house in, in two weeks or she's, no one, no one really saw the change. Oh my goodness. Because you, you draw, you draw back. So in order for someone to mm catch the change, they'd have to be around long enough to know what you were before to where you are now, right? So you really do begin to isolate. And even with family, you know, I would always get up and go to work. You know, that's the one thing I always said, like, I'm never going to be in a position where I don't have, but I would get up and go to work, but then I'd just go crash. And that just seems like an adulting day, you know, like you don't work all day. Maybe she wants to spend her afternoon watching TV all day. So no one really picked up on the flags. I will say that there were people around me that realized I started drinking excessively 
And, you know, when all of this was going on, I actually attempted to kill myself by just over drinking. Like, I just was like, F it. You know, no one is listening to me. I'm trying to tell the VA what happened to me. I'm trying to get my story out here so you guys can know there's a psychopath on the loose. Like, but no one was listening to me. So I felt kind of hopeless. Maybe for our listeners that if they haven't experienced um, MST or a significant trauma, could you explain what that hopelessness feels like? Because I, it's hard to get it across to people while you're experiencing it. So I think it might be better heard now that you're in a better place. Yeah, I would have to say that that hopelessness feeling is just the best way I could explain it is say you were at school as like a a young person, you're in elementary school and you go to school every day and you're getting beat up. And you'd go tell the teacher like this, this person is, is, is beating me up and no one listens to you. So you have to silently get beat for years and years and years. And it really erodes your spirit. And that's what it felt like is just like my spirit was slowly eroding because everywhere I turned to try to get help, the doors were closed and I was left to sit in it. Meanwhile, because of social media and all these things, you're seeing everyone around your, you just living this positive life, babies, marriage, all these things are happening. Meanwhile, you're frozen in time and this incident that no one will even recognize happened. So to me, that's just what it meant. It was just torture, honestly, a slow torture. The, the social media aspect too is because yes, you're isolated, so you're, watching tv but you're not really watching tv you're like also scrolling there might be like a a glass of wine in your hand or something like that and you're covered in a blanket and i i do remember doing that quite often where i would just mentally beat myself up every single day i'd see another engagement ring um another baby another beautiful wedding in nantucket or some shit like that you know and then i'd be like i'm never gonna have those things because In my particular case, I think the the one assault that really just changed my entire perspective of the world, when he was done with me, he basically said, no one's ever going to want you after this. And that haunted me for around a decade where I, I would just play that in my head, not intentionally either, but it was just this unconscious, like, you're worthless. You're never going to have any of this just because of what someone else did to you. So like that person had control over my life for that long. Your healing journey is very interesting. And I don't know where you are on that stage, but like when you have someone throw that level of just uh, that level of just disgustingness on you, it almost twists your mind to where if someone were to give you a compliment after that, you'll break down crying. Cause like, what are you looking at? Like, you're not like, what do you see? And so I am number one, sorry that you went through that. I don't think anyone should be going, don't even get me started on that. But to see you here now sharing stories just shows that not only was he wrong, but now you're doing something to, to change the way we're even looking at this, right? We're putting faces right. to this 
right? So good for you. You are a real life superhero and I commend you for doing it. Thank you. I'm, I'm trying. It's just, I think with MST in particular, you know, a lot of people, I mean, if they pay attention to the news, I'm sure a lot of people don't <laughs> anymore just because it's depressing, but it's every three or four years, there's a big headline of a service member died or maybe like what happened at Lackland or Tailhook in the 90s, but it's something that once the news cycle changes, people, it's like, you know, have a sight out of mind. And there is that documentary out there, The Invisible War, that I think it was 2013 or 14 that it came out. And it was impactful. Like, I was in tears by the end of it. But if you see that more than once, like you're still seeing the same stories repeatedly, which doesn't make them any less important, but the impact on one person that's that's lessened over time. So my logic is week after week after week, if you're hearing a unique story, whether it's male, female, whether they're transitioning, something like that, and maybe one's not as severe as the other, but the impact on their life took them in a completely, like it just took them left. <laughs> like people can't ignore that, that this is story after story after story, week after week after week. How does it change? You know what I mean? And one yeah. of the things I say is that I am blessed. I work in a interesting, I have a, a unique job in itself now, right? I, in supporting military families, but it places me in rooms with folks that I never thought I would know on a first name basis in my lifetime, especially having had my record. I was always scared that if I advanced in my career, could someone come back and throw this in my face of having been, you know, stained with this, this thing. And, and so what I will say is this, if there are people that are watching this or uh, listening to this, that are dealing with MST, number one, I believe you, she believes you, we all believe you, right. Validating your feelings. But then two, let's talk about how we can at least get your life moving in the right direction to give yourself time to heal. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. I wish I had that VA disability rating on me to give me time to pull out of work to be able to address my feelings. And because I didn't, I never processed anything. For 10 years, I was just working. I went to an event here in Washington, D.C., I guess it's been about seven months ago, where I actually ran into the secretary of the VA, and I was fired up. I had in my mind what I was going to say if I ever had this opportunity, and none of that came out. (laughs) None of it came out. And to my surprise, Secretary McDonough is his name. To my surprise, I want to share with you guys some things that he shared with me, because he gets it. If you, whatever your feeling is about the VA and, and starting that next chapter of your military journey, which is what I call the, in my mind what the VA is, I want you to rest assured that I don't know about anybody coming in, but Secretary McDonough get it. So, you know, <laughs> I pulled him to the side. I actually had a little bit of an attitude and I just knew his security was going to just be like, get this nut out of here. But to my surprise, he was like, nah, talk to me. Like, what's going on? And he was like, no, I don't mean like what's going on right now. I want you to tell me from the beginning what happened to you. And so I told him my story and I told him, look, you know, I'm not able to get my benefits because they were shredding this, doing this. How do I corroborate the story? I have the letter from my commander. I have everything, but I can't get that to translate in the VA. 
And so I lied to you not. I finished my conversation with him. He tells me some nuggets. Number one, if you are a survivor or have experienced MST, do not have your file sitting in that VA, just sitting out there. You need to request that your file is sent to Puerto Rico. Why? Because they established an entire MST team that specializes in finding markers, not necessarily hard evidence. They just need a marker. So say, for instance, you know, you are a person that was doing great work in the military and then you just stop going to work. Or if you're all of a sudden going to the doctor crazy and it's unexplained, right? They go through your military record to find those markers. And then those markers based with your statement is how you're getting approved through the VA. So having that knowledge now and being able to give that to others that have experienced is really where I have found great joy. But no joke, after I went off on him in a not right way, and I apologize if I came off crazy, sir, that very next day, it was 0900. This man had someone on the phone with me. Like, let's pull her file right now. Let's go through it. And within days, I had a rating. Like, not months. I had a rating because he said you should not have, no one should have to be traumatized or have to go through this twice. So that's what I would say to you guys is like, if you're down, if you're, you know, whatever you're going through, just know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Even if you've gotten a dishonorable discharge, you can get that flipped, especially given those markers. And I just want to give people encouragement to say, it's not your fault. Go get the support you need. And the establishment in Puerto Rico, is that something you can just Google or is there, do you know the name of it? If you give me a second, I surely can. Okay. want to make sure I can put it in the show notes because that is huge. People definitely, I, I actually just found out about that on Monday. I was a part of a research study and the researcher had mentioned it to me and I had no clue. Oh, it's a thing. The name of that center is the Military Sexual Trauma MST Operations Center. And it's in San Juan all of these folks for the most part are remote, but what's really, really great is they are there all day to just kind of guide you, hand walk you through. I appreciated their honesty because she straight up said, look, you have other claims over here. I don't care about none of that. What I care about is making sure that you are rated for PTSD, secondary MST, and making sure that when I'm done with you, you get not what you want, but what you're entitled to. That process is the only reason why I've been successful in the VA is just honest to goodness, just dumb luck of just being at the right place at the right time. And now me knowing and trying to share that with others. Thank you. I I think that's going to be huge for so many of our listeners because it's the, the horror stories that not only I've heard, but experienced on my own with just trying to get help and either catching an attitude. One nurse, once she asked me who the hell I thought I was, which will be discussed in a future episode. (laughs) And yeah, it's, it's been almost nightmarish yet. Some people, um, I did have a guest. She had a great experience where she was like, I, she pretty much only been to um, military care facilities her whole life. And then she has a young female doctor that she felt she could relate to and ask a bunch of questions to. And I'm just thinking this, this shouldn't be a mixed bag. We shouldn't have 50 different experiences in 50 different states. Well, and and the other thing is, you know, we should not leave our care up to luck. 
going through, you know, I, I do truly believe that when you have been or you are a survivor of MST and then you're transitioning on that second part of your journey, you know, you're sitting in front of these, um, what are they called? Like these evaluators, the people that are doing your exam. And you really have to cross your fingers and wish on a lucky star that they're even listening to you. That in itself, if anyone has been through that process, it's already frustrating. But now add the layers of MST on top of that. And my goodness, that in itself can send someone back into a spiral. Um, like they were, you know, right there from day one. And then what? I just really wish we can get to a point to where we don't have 50 different experiences. We don't have to wish on a lucky star that we have all been through this, unfortunately, right? We've been through this. And we should, at this stage, be treated with some dignity. Fuck that nurse that said that to you, by the way, because <laughs> what she said is, I am who I am, and I am here. You are a mandated reporter. I don't give a hot ass what you think. <laughs> the abridged version of that story. Uh, my roommate uh, that was there when I was hospitalized last year, she and I are going to share our accounts of what happened, but... The, the room had like two beds per room and then like an adjoining bathroom. And the woman in the other room was in some gastrointestinal distress Yeah, for hours in that bathroom and not just on the can, but, you know, also in the shower. So mm -hmm. I asked the nurse, hey, uh, would you guys happen to have any shower shoes? And she was like, who the hell do you think you are? And I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want me to walk around and shit barefoot? What's your name? <laughs> like that was just a genuine request. Like mm -hmm. you know, just because you're having a shitty day, that doesn't mean you go shit up someone else's, right? Do you know? Oh, she wasn't having a shitty day. It was like when when we get to that episode, people under will understand. Like, because I was raising hell the whole time I was in there. Like, I went there broken, upset so so fragile like and then within maybe three hours i had to fight for just my right to be seen as a human being because wow. i was re-traumatized again within um an hour of getting up to that unit so you can imagine what happened but yeah it's hearing like a nightmare like that happening to my roommate and I but then someone else is just like oh yeah it's all butterflies and daisies at this one like that's that's not okay and another thing that I mean if I say nothing else I will say this I wish that when it comes to like let's not even act like it doesn't exist race is a thing I think that oftentimes a lot of the experience if, let me speak for me I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a blanket statement for me I feel like people would hear my story and see my evidence, like I'm not just speaking wildly, right? But, you know, I have my book with everything in it. And they would say, hands down, let's, we, should, we need to support her until they recognized on some of those records that I was an African-American woman. And then they're like, ah, oh, but was it that bad? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the things that I just want people to have an awareness of is that you are going through these issues with MST and then you're having to deal with people that you know have hatred in their heart that just you know it is what it is of course like how do i get around that how do you prove it just know that from the folks i have a, a good friend who she's me and her do teach a black girl teach a white girl and so what does that mean there are things in the african-american community that she don't understand she don't mm -hmm. and I think <laughs> that she's not 
going on that I'm like, you do what? And mm-hmm. you know, she, me and her met through the VA. She was going through MST, like PTSD courses or whatever. And we just really clicked. She had someone pat call her. And I'm not diminishing her experience, but this is just the parallels, right? She is from the middle of the country, blonde hair, blue eyes, just the typical beautiful woman, right? Um, Someone cat called her. She received the best care at that hospital that I'd ever seen. I've never seen care like that. Um, Mm -hmm. She got 100% off the bat her first time going in. And Mm -hmm. she laughs and jokes and says, you were raped, beat, have the proof of it. And you're still fighting to this day to be heard. When I got to my first space, I, I, I don't know. I know that I'm attractive. I'm smart. Like I smile a lot. And even though when I got to my first space, I was a shell of a human being. Like I, I that was my mask. That was what I, I knew to fall back on. Was just smile at everything. You know, like people will think you're fine. But I noticed that when people were asking me out and stuff, it was, oh, do you want to come over? It was never like, you know, trying to take me out on a date. But then like another lieutenant showed up there, I think maybe six months later, and I met her in field training. And we just clicked again right away. But she was just like, oh, yeah, what's his nuts, you know, came over and made me dinner. And I was like, oh, yeah. He asked if I was into anal. <laughs> like, right. So, <laughs> so there's a, a, a very different, if you're a dark-skinned Black woman, your life is so far removed from that of a, I don't know, tan, tall, blonde hair, blue-eyed yeah. woman. It's, it's different. You would never believe it until you lived it, but... <laughs> I think we need to start on, you know, with MST, with our experiences. I think that it's healthy to identify those differences. Um, Because my friend, before she met me, and she didn't even know, like, she thought everyone has this positive experience in the military or if something happens, and then you transition on your journey to the VA, and it's just wonderful. And I'm like, honey, that is a bubble you're living in. And not Mm -hmm. to pop it, but just consider what others are going through and so that has been eye-opening and now she advocates for people like we'll use her own case as an example uh you know i just had a guy say that uh, the guy when it was cat calling her told her that she had nice tits or something um and she was very insecure about her chest you know just the parallel it, it's just wild when you think about it so we shouldn't ignore it we should talk about it um yeah. because i think that we should all be kind of advocating for one another and beating the pavement to see change uh happen across yeah. the board. yeah the, the the change the activism all of it, it it just needs to be intersectional it can't just be yeah. a certain group actually gets the help but speaking of that i before you had mentioned that you know you just kind of work 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 yeah what was the point that made you seek help and then you know try to mitigate all the ptsd symptoms isolation all of that that's really good question because my father like i said four star he has a very strong work ethic so i just found myself mirroring his work ethic so i didn't think there was anything wrong i had noticed that i had become a bit cold 
Uh, and like when I talk to someone, like, you know, I have a seven-year-old daughter. Someone couldn't come to work because, I don't know, maybe they didn't have a babysitter. Well, why are you trying to make your problem my problem? I think it was my coping mechanism. But, you know, looking back, it was clearly trauma. Um, and what happened to me is... And it's funny kind of, but you know, being so obsessed with work, I would go to these work events and I went to an event and ended up meeting my now husband. He gets a lot of flack because he was on reality TV and all these things, but he was able to objectively come in and say, what is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> real quick, like, what is wrong with you? Like, you know, it's okay to get a hug, right? Like. Mm -hmm. I say these things, you kind of like clam up and like respectfully, the way you talk to people is wild. So you need to figure that out. I started going to therapy and it took me a long time to find a therapist that understood me, but it really was a coping mechanism or a wall that I built up to not have to deal with my issue. If I could put everything into work, then I didn't have time to think about anything else. That's what changed is having someone finally call me on my bullshit and say, hey, yeah, you know, maybe I shouldn't have acted that way. <laughs> so, oh, man. Do you ever see those those meme videos where I think the caption's like, don't come back over here with that bullshit. And then somebody's like walking over, dancing all crazy. <laughs> that was me. Yeah. Was oh, me. same here. Same yeah. here. That was me. In, in therapy, were there any... Were there any coping mechanisms that stood out to you? I definitely hear that humor is one. So. Uh, coping mechanisms, you know, obviously, like I was a workaholic. I try to, you know, I mask everything with humor, which isn't really necessarily a great thing either. But one of the things in therapy that we did that was the most realist thing was I was forced to write a letter to the person that that did this. And that letter I was supposed to tell him, how it made me feel, um, how it's been since then, and just asking the questions that I know I'll never get an answer to. And then the second part of that exercise was me having to look in the mirror and start to say at least five positive things about my physical characteristics. And the reason being, I know you can't tell because I look at how to change. I have like freckles that I, I really don't care for. And, you know, after the sexual assault, I was left with some um, sexual scars, I like to say, where he was so forceful that there are just some issues that I'm just super hypersensitive about. Really looking at everything that I look at as a flaw and then speaking positive light into those things. That forced me to put down my defense mechanism of comedy and all those things and actually be like, oh, my God, I didn't realize that I really am this hard on myself. And she was extremely helpful for me. She was. I don't like therapy, but she was all right. <laughs> when you wrote that letter, how much time had it been since that assault? It had been over 10 years. What was it like? Did it feel like maybe weight came off of your shoulders? No, I was angry. I don't know about anyone else, but for me, when I went to the hospital, I had pockets of memory. And having not thought about it in a long time and going back to the drawing board, every time I'd start writing the letter, I'd have to start back over because I remembered a detail that I didn't even remember the day after it happened. The reason I got angry was because none of it made sense. And I'm a very logical girl, very logical. 
But even now, I don't know why he chose me. I don't understand why he was persistent in the cyber stalking after the fact. I don't understand his threat of trying to, to literally kill me. I don't understand what happened. Blaming myself, what did I do to prompt this response from a person? And I still don't understand it. So it makes me angry because my life has been forever changed. Um, and I have a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend that knows this person and his life has flourished. So why have I been suffering and going through all of what I've been going through? Meanwhile, you've just been living life. Haven't even thought about me. Maybe, I don't know, but haven't even thought about me because you're out here living your best life. Meanwhile, I can't even take a shower or be around anyone that smells like Dove. Make that make yeah. sense. Or uh, I've definitely been there. I can I can emphasize that's when you see them out there living their best life. Like I I can say that about my ex and like maybe several abusers in my past where they just throw you away. It it takes you from anger to rage, yeah. <laughs> and it's something that infects everything about your life no matter how much you try to say oh i'm fine now it's been a couple of years no <laughs> it's it's when you accidentally drop a fork on the ground when you're washing the dishes and then you are blind with rage for a minute yeah. like cussing at yourself cussing at like the dog cussing at some clouds like and it's it's there until you're able to do an exercise like that like write a letter and finally give life to that rage in in a healthy way yeah and you know the other thing that just it's once you're abused in that way then that was the bar for my relationships mm -hmm. so you know you treat me nice yeah you may hit me right yeah you may beat me up but you're not raping me you're a catch so it really skewed the way that i received or process what a healthy relationship is and now you know skipping ahead right i have a husband that's like hey let me give you a massage let me cook dinner and i'm like what the fuck is this you know it's foreign because i've never had someone take such care so just to right. realize now being in a healthy state of mind to realize like all the trauma and all the abuse that I didn't even recognize as abuse, but sitting here now recognizing like, damn, I let this person financially abuse me. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of insane to think that that was the best that I could do. And I accepted it. I would have been fine. I would have married it and been fine, lived a great life. But looking at being in a healthy space, it scares the, the dickens out of me to know that I, I did that. Oh, yeah, I understand. I mean, I, for the first time, when I, before I had moved to Guam, when I, when I started that relationship, that was the first time I'd ever gotten the bare minimum from someone. So I thought I was being treated like a queen. I was like, oh my God, I'm in love. Like, I'm never going to let this one go. And uh, it just got worse and worse and worse when I finally moved there. And I just kept holding on to that image from the beginning of the, the bare minimum is is the best <laughs> and you know eventually like that that fell apart like it i mean i think his idea was maybe if i treat her so badly i can get out of this engagement she'll finally give up and break up with me which yeah no because <laughs> i had no self-esteem or you know knowledge of what a healthy relationship looked like and then fast forward now 
what is it? That was 2019, and then now is 2023, where I went to do an interview with another guest prior to right now, and I spilled a cappuccino that my boyfriend made all over the table, like ruined his good tablecloth. And I was just like, oh, no, 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 I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry, like freaking out because I'm having a trauma response to a dozen other men. Whereas he was just like, it's cool. Like, you know, and he went and, you know, just started the laundry, cleaned it up, sprayed the table and and then like gave me the dog to hold on to. And I was just like, what is going on here? And I'm sitting there like, you know, the quote is like, don't cry over spilled milk, but I'm sitting there tearing up over a spilled cappuccino because someone is treating me so well rather than calling me stupid and clumsy and, you know, just trying to make me feel like garbage about a simple mistake. And it's so huge that something so small is so evident of a complete change in my life. And I, I, think he understands like what a big deal it is, but he's just like, no, this is how anybody should be treated. <laughs> you know? Who knew? Like it's amazing yeah. over here. Yeah. It's crazy. But he's he's definitely a godsend. And I, I I definitely want to share with our listeners that if you have trauma cycle of of shitty relationships, there is a good person out there. There really is. Once you start learning about, you know, your boundaries, your personal bill of rights, what you will and won't accept and what is completely unacceptable and you stick to it, that's when the good ones start coming around. (laughs) When I wasn't looking, all of a sudden, boom, here I am. Married, looking crazy. But, you know, it really was a point when he would just beat me, that was fine. If he would just belittle me, that was fine. If he would just cheat on me, that was fine, you know, because it not doing so just being treated like a human right yeah. was was just mind-boggling to me oh you brought me some cheetos that's amazing you're the best mm-hmm. man right <laughs> like, i know a lot of my exes they didn't just cheat like they choked like I don't, to, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it but like i know going to visit my ex in San Diego at one point like we went to a bar with some of his friends and then he was like oh this girl she keeps following us and um, I'm looking at her and she looks like a little sad and he's like yeah I don't know every time her friend hooks up with our my roommate like we just hang out and I was like okay yeah no I've been that girl before I've, I've hung out and like spent time with and caught feelings for some guy and then his random girlfriend just shows up out of nowhere you know (laughs) and instead of actually verbalizing that like I have just now I just shook it off thinking this is the person that I'm supposed to be with he's young like don't worry about it people make mistakes he'll never do it again And like, you don't have to do that with your partner. If you have to sit there and justify why you have to put up with that stuff, leave. <laughs> run fast. Run, run. Right. Yeah, not, don't even run. If, if they choked, <laughs> you run. <laughs> what do you think it will take for there to be maybe a cultural change within 
the military culture or society as a whole, where instead of pushing these things under the rug and, you know, trying to make sure that they don't hit national news, what would it take for leadership, not only all the way out to like commands, but to just a basic supervisor to say, I'm here to support you. What, what do you think it would take? Everything in my mind swallowed what I organically wanted to say. So I'm trying to figure out how to, to clean this up. How do we get people to pay attention to this issue that is clearly an issue that is devastating? I mean, thousands upon thousands of folks. No one cares until it's personal. Yep. Someone getting raped is just someone getting raped. Someone being stalked is just someone getting stalked. But when a person has someone close to them experience this, they have a whole nother different lens and can be empathetic in ways that, you know, you never even thought possible. The answer is, I don't know. I believe speaking out and getting these stories out would help. But truth of the matter is, um, let's just speak, speak about women for a second. You know, our rights as women have been stripped from us. There are a lot of people that don't mind, and I'm saying this because I've had a conversation with the person that has said this to me. Why does it matter if you get raped? You have a vagina, you gotta use it. And that mentality really still exists. That is a thing. So until we can start seeing each other as human beings, right? As right. people just having empathy with each other, we've been so desensitized. Like until we can actually put value in one another, I don't know if this will ever be fixed. Mm-hmm. Until it begins happening to people in these positions that are able to see the impact it has, and then they are able to then go make real change. People laughed in, I think it was 2014 or 15. People in the Air Force hated, like my friends would send me a message. I can't fucking log on to my computer without having to watch this fucking video of your dad talking about sexual assault. Well, yeah, somebody should make it. Yes, someone should take the charge in making this a talked about, take the all, all of that away. It needs to be talked about every single day. If someone Mm -hmm. says no, the answer is no. Until people recognize, then we're just going to be where we are. It seems like when when the person that has experienced the sexual assault, like regardless of their gender, they're just othered immediately. They don't matter. They're other. Mm -hmm. And it's a unique circumstance. I can't tell you. I actually did a video. I had never done it. It was this past April. And I just knew when I posted this video, I was either going to get hate or I was going to get another, a whole bunch of women had similar experiences. To my surprise, I got more hits from men that had been sexually assaulted by other men in infantry units or whatever the case may be than I did of friggin' women. So, I mean, this is a real problem across the board. I don't care what you look like. It is a problem. From what I've understood from men, it's either that it was some sort of attack or it was hazing. Hazing. And, and hazing is, is huge. And I know that there's a whole dog and pony show now saying, oh, we don't do that anymore. And it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think that we need to stop, you know, when, when they make these like stances on, oh no, this doesn't happen anymore. But it does. Because if you go look at the logs of people getting out of the military by how, whatever means, and then they go to the VA, they're telling their story to get their benefit. Go pull some of those stories and you will see that it's still happening. 
So it's really ridiculous. It drives me crazy. Oh, same here. And what advice would you offer to a young man or young woman that's considering joining now with maybe they don't really have any familiarity with the military. They just, you know, saw a commercial or a recruiter showed up at their school. What would you tell them they, they might need to prepare mentally in order to succeed? Well, number one, numbers are down across the board because I'm a millennial and we are advocating and we're standing and we're saying like, look, this is a problem and you have not fixed it. Therefore, why would I sign up? To those who take the plunge, I would say, if you're going in, thinking that this can't happen, think again, it can happen. Two, don't let your guard down with anyone. And three, document everything. I don't give a hot fuck what it is. If someone cat calls you, if they say something that seems weird, right? You know how you get that feeling? Like, why did you say that? Document it go to that MP station. If you're ever in a situation where you're assaulted, go to the MPs. I don't even care if you have the option to press charges or not and you choose not to. Just go get it documented outside of yourself. Keep a diary. Tell a friend. Have your friend write a statement because you never know how that may help you 10 years down the line. And it's better to get it while you're in that moment than try to find a friend that doesn't change their name 20 times because when you're in the military you get a stack about seven ex-wives and husbands so you know they didn't change the name a million times so it's better to get that information there in the moment and I think that the military is beautiful right I grew up in it I have benefited greatly from it so I'm not going to say it's all bad but just recognize that there is bad there can be bad there and just make sure you're prepared to handle it should it be an issue what would you say to someone that wants to offer support to a friend or loved one that they're currently going through the spiral or they're just super depressed or they're just they're not quite acting the way they used to before and they won't really open up about why how would you support them i personally have learned and i would have appreciated someone not asking me anything but being there because just being there and showing that you're there, eventually I would open up and be like, oh, this person's real ill. Maybe I'll, you know, share a little bit. And when they when they talk, shut up. You don't always have to have something to say. You don't have to fix anything. Sometimes they just need to get the thoughts that are plaguing them out. And just having someone there to receive some of that, I mean, I don't think people realize that can save a life. I would just say be there. Being there doesn't require anything. Absolutely. If I, I know you wrote the letter to your assailant, but I, would you want to share the main idea of that letter or would you want to share what you would say to them just today on November 14th, 2023? It's all one and the same. The contents or what I would say and what I wrote really came down to me saying, I forgive you. Because in order for me to be a good mom, in order for me to move on and try to be a good wife, being a wife is hard, right? (laughs) But in order for me to do all the things that I need to do to find some type of joy in my life, I have to forgive the fact that you're a fucking asshole and you were set out to destroy and harm me. I have to be able to look past that because for me, I have to believe 
in a higher power. I just have to believe in karma. I just have to believe there's more. And I don't want to get caught up and so enraged and hate that I'm missing a blessing or an opportunity or something because I'm just so tuned in to hating this person. So the letter was pretty much me saying, I will never forget, but I have to forgive because the people in my life today deserve that version, a healthy version of me. And I cannot be healthy and hate at the same time. Hate is poison. (laughs) It really is. And if there wasn't maybe a helper organization or nonprofit that you wanted to shout out that was there during your journey, or maybe there's several. (laughs) There are several, um, gosh, nonprofits. I can't even begin to tell you because I, I work in the nonprofit world, right? So the people I stumbled upon was through working. Um, but you know, I don't think he's a nonprofit. He's for profit. One of the people I would shout out is going to be less. Lester. He is what they call the VA wizard. He is, has been instrumental in helping me see that I'm entitled to what I'm entitled to. And that in itself was healing. If you guys are having issues with the VA, less, the VA wizard is your guy. You can Google him. And then the other person that I would shout out is going to be Charles Eggleston. He's on several boards. He's on the Purple Heart Foundation board, Blue Star Families. Charles was the first person outside of my husband. Outside of my, you know, my husband was number one, but not even my own family. Charles was the first one that said, tell me, he was one of those people that were just there, tell me what happened to you. And from me sharing with him what happened, he said, hold on tight. And that was the end of it. I didn't have to express anything. I didn't have to prove anything. He just said, baby girl, I got you. And he just really moved mountains for me. So I don't think we give people their flowers enough, but I 1000% have such a great respect, admiration. He mentors me, Charles Eggleston and Les the VA Wizard. Just, they are a tag team duo that just, they saved my life to be honest. Thank you both for doing that for her. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you. And and thank you again for your your courage to speak about just such a trauma. It's it's not easy to come on this podcast. And I've definitely shed a lot of tears with guests or smiles. And I think what is nice about when we get to the end of the episode is that they're, they're just this bond. I mean, I know we've met over the internet, but (laughs) it's, these stories are, are unforgettable and, and seeing and hearing someone go from hurt, scared, lost to I'm fierce. Now I'm a warrior. I'm going to do what I can to, to help others get to this state too is, it's it's nothing short of miraculous to be honest it's it's just lovely to see and thank you for sharing your your journey with us and the also yeah the the help with the the VA about the the place in Puerto Rico so i will definitely get that into the show notes that is huge for our listeners yeah please and you know if anyone has any questions obviously you can share their at with me and i if I don't know the answer, I know the person that knows it. And I'm not talking about a third party or what we call Barrick's lawyer. Like I'm a call over to the White House and say, hey, I need some information. So if you guys are going through something, I would encourage you go through your congressman person, get that congressional opened, you know, whatever you guys need, um, reach out to me. I am happy to help.
And I just want to see all of us win and bounce back from this. So that's all I have. Okay, folks, that was the episode. Shay is just an amazing person. Her sense of humor. I have, oh my gosh, I was rolling through this whole episode. I'm sure you heard it. And it's incredible that people, even though humor is more of a coping skill, people still can find joy after something so horrible happens to them. And I I just wanted to highlight that. Please give Shay and all of our guests a huge thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing these moments with us and the lessons that they've learned. Going to let you in on a little secret. There are only two episodes left to go in our pilot episodes. Yeah, season's almost done. And just going to say a pre-thank you for all the support you've given me and our guests. This has been such a great experience. You'll find out pretty soon. I have some new products for our survivors and for anybody that's trying to support them. So keep your eye out. Join our mailing list and you'll see what they look like. And our next episode will be one that I've teased quite a few times. My roommate from my hospitalization in Houston around Christmas time of 2022. This one's a doozy. This is, well, I'm not going to give any more spoilers. You've heard them, but please tune in. This one will definitely be something where your jaw hits the ground. I hope you have a great week. And as always, I invite you to stay safe, be kind, and take care. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Silence Voices, Stories of MST. Your support means the world to us. To keep these important conversations going, we rely on your generosity. Consider donating to help us continue to shed light on this crucial issue. Visit our website at www.silencevoicesmst.com to contribute, get involved, and join our community. Together, we can make a difference. Stay tuned for more inspiring stories, and remember, your voice matters.